0: The reading this morning is from John chapter 16, verses 1 to 16, and can be found on page 1084 of the Pew Bibles. All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment." about sin because people do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear, but when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. Jesus went on to say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then, after a little while, you will see me. Amen.
1: Breathe on me, breath of God, till I am wholly thine. Let us pray. Breath of God who breathed and creation was formed. Who breathed and life was imparted in the human frame. Who breathes and raises up a people for your glory who breathes and enables us to live, to witness, to worship, and to pray. Guide our prayers now as we face an assembly election. Sovereign Lord, you rule with power. You are so great and awesome. To you, human powers are as nothing, no more than a drop of water or a single drip from a tap. The distant lands, the Americas, Asia, Africa, Europe, these to you are as light as a sprinkling of dust, and its peoples to you are as tiny as tiny ants. We worship you. We adore you. We magnify your holy name. O, all-powerful creator and sustainer of this world, hear us as we pray for the assembly elections on Thursday. Help us and our fellow citizens to exercise our democratic responsibility to vote and guide us as to how we make our choice. We seek men and women of integrity, honesty, and competence. May those who are elected rise to their highest ideals. May they put the common good before private or personal or sectional interests. May they show respect for one another and for our different communities and may we see progress towards the stable just and prosperous society which we all desire. We pray for those who work in the Stormont Secretariat and for civil servants, and all who serve the community from those who sweep the streets to the permanent secretaries you lord rule with justice and compassion may we see your rule in the decisions and actions of our elected representatives and may those who profess to follow you show a Christian lifestyle and a biblical world view. We pray for those in need in our congregation, in our community, for those with heavy hearts, those burdened with cares and concerns. work Lord in all these lives bodies, minds families and circumstances and may we all know that those who wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings like eagles will walk and not grow weary and not grow faint. In Jesus' name. Amen.
2: Please take a, a pew Bible, and if you want to turn to John chapter 16 and have it open in front of you, you'll find it very useful for yourself as we look at this passage from John chapter 16. You'll find it on page 1084. And as you're looking that up, let me pray for us as we come to God's words. Father, what a thought that the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Father, as we come to this passage, particularly about the Holy Spirit, we pray as we read and look into the ministry and work of the Spirit of God, we know from this passage that the Spirit's work is to bring glory to yourself. And Father, we pray for your help to understand it. We pray for the enabling to apply it to our hearts and our minds, and we pray, Lord, that we would leave this place having met with yourself. We pray in your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. the former. Manchester United captain Roy Keane in May 2015 released an updated version of his autobiography and one of Keane's mottos in the autobiography, as many of you will know, this is some beard, isn't it, Um, when you think of it, but one of his mottos was this, fail to prepare prepare to fail. Now, I don't think he was the one that came up with that, but he used it when he played for um, Ireland, but also for Manchester United, and it got him into trouble sometimes, because it was always about getting ready for the game. It was always about being prepared mentally, physically, logistically, so that he would be able to prepare well to succeed. It's a familiar phrase to us, isn't it? Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And yet, it is fittingly apt for this passage in John chapter 16, and over these last number of chapters, because Jesus has been preparing his disciples. He has been getting them ready, hopefully not to fail, because if they were left to their own devices, they certainly would. But Jesus has some very unorthodox ways of preparing his disciples. We know two things already from these chapters that we've looked at in chapters 13 to 16. The first thing is this. He tells them, I'm preparing you because I'm leaving. doesn't sound a great way to prepare people, does it? I'm leaving you. You're going to be on your own. Chapter 13 said, Jesus said to his children, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. Chapter 14, verse 25, all this I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. Jesus is only going to be with his disciples a little longer. He's preparing them for his departure. The news is troubling for the disciples, so much so that Jesus said to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't be afraid. And in our passage before us this morning, do you see it? Chapter 16, verse 6, we see that Jesus, because he's told them that he's leaving, in verse 8, they're filled with grief. They're consumed by the fact that the Messiah, the Master, their Master, the Lord, the Son of God, their leader, is leaving, no longer going to be with them, and it clouds how much they're able to take in. Do you see that? You don't even ask me, he says, about where I'm going. It's clouding them. Have you ever been in that situation where your mind is so clouded, you're not even actually taking in things? And here the disciples are clouded because Jesus is telling them, I'm leaving you. They are filled with grief. The second thing that we've learned over these last number of weeks is that Jesus is preparing them in a very unorthodox way because he says to them, as you've learned if you were here last week, that the world will hate you. I'm leaving you, and the world will hate you. It's not great preparation, I think, for motivation. You wouldn't get the gurus going, this is the best way to get them motivated. Tell them you're leaving, but also tell them that they'll be hated as well. We saw this last week. Jesus, in preparing them, is telling them, When I depart, you'll be kicked out of the synagogues. Those who seek to kill you will think they're doing a service for you, to God. Do you remember Paul of of Tartus? Do you remember him? He persecuted the Christians. What did he think? I'm doing the will of God, getting rid of these people. That's exactly what Jesus tells these disciples here. The question is, will Jesus' preparation of his disciples prepare the disciples to succeed or fail? Because at this particular stage in the life of his disciples, it seems a daunting task to them. They're filled with grief. They're not even taking things in. It all seems like it's pointing to failure. If Keen was there, he'd be saying, you're looking like lads who will fail. And the question, especially when you consider that, is this. How will these men, these apostles, carry on the work of making Jesus known when the world is hateful and stacked against them? How will they do this? How will they have the power and enabling to communicate the good news of Jesus to anyone, let alone a world that is anti-Jesus and anti-gospel? How will these men declare the lordship of Jesus in a world that doesn't recognize Jesus' claim or his life on them, in a world where everyone is king and boss of their own lives? How will these men declare the holy standards of God, his law and righteousness, when they go out into a world? and that has its own standards of morality, religiosity, and ethics? How will they highlight the scriptural truth that sin, rebellion against God, is humanity's greatest failure when sin is no longer taken serious? How will they share about the impending judgment of that is to come when the judgment of God is laughed at and not taken seriously? It's down to your own arrangements. You see, the disciples' world and times is very much like our own, isn't it? Where sin today is an old-fashioned world, a bit of naughtiness on the side, a bit of a slip-up, a bit of a failure. So we're all doing that. That's what sin is. Where today righteousness is understood as, I'm not as bad as the boy down the road. They're worse than me. Or, I'm doing my best, aren't I, in life. That's my righteousness. When today judgment is nothing to be worried about because we set our own standards. We're not answerable to anyone but ourselves. Jesus is preparing these disciples for the world and time that they're in. But what hope is there in declaring the good news of Jesus in this kind of world? What hope is there of convincing the hearts and minds of men and women, boys and girls, that Jesus is relevant, that he's needed, that he is Lord and Saviour? It's a daunting task, doomed to failure, if left with just these disciples or even ourselves alone. You see, the wonderful yet daunting task given to the apostles, the disciples, even though they are fearful, grieving the impending loss of Jesus' departure, is that it is only possible because of God's promised gift to come, the Holy Spirit. Jesus says to his disciples, do you see it there in verse 7? I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. The disciples are not thinking this. They don't think this is a good thing. Jesus is leaving. The world will hate them. They're fearful, filled with grief. The disciples are not wanting this, him to go. And he's saying to them directly, it is for your good that I'm going. It is good because I'm going. And unless I go away, he says, the counselor, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. It is good that Jesus is leaving because the counsellor, the Holy Spirit, is coming and will be sent. Why? Why is it good that the Holy Spirit comes after the departure of Jesus? There are four reasons, good reasons, found so far in John's Gospel. The first we've looked at already in chapter 14, where we saw in chapter 14, verse 26, the good reason is because the Holy Spirit will teach the disciples all things reminding them of everything Jesus has said to them. When he comes, he'll teach you all things. He'll remind you of everything that I have said. The Spirit of God has a teaching ministry to these disciples now that Jesus is gone. The Spirit of truth is a gift from God to teach and remind these disciples of all that Jesus has said and did. The need They need the Holy Spirit to teach them when Jesus returns. They're barely able to take it in now. So when he goes... The Spirit's job is to remind them, to teach them all that Jesus has done, to show them the significance and the meaning of all that Christ did for them at the cross, the resurrection and the ascension. But now here in chapter 16 this morning, we see that the Spirit's ministry and role is expanded. Do you see it in verses 8 to 11? He says in verse 8, Jesus says, when he, that is the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin righteousness, and judgment. What an encouraging and great words to hear if you're one of the disciples, that the Spirit is going to come and do certain things. This morning we're going to break down and, and concentrate on these verses, verses 8 to 11, into their separate parts. Firstly, do you see it in verse 8? That the Spirit will come to convict the world of guilt. The word convict here means to bring to light, to expose and I think we're used to that meaning, aren't we? Even in, as we read papers or police raids or Gardaí raids or whatever it is, when papers expose a celebrity's wrongs or lifestyle, you only have to mention three letters, R-H-I, and you think, bring to light, expose. It's brought out into the open. And it's the same idea here that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, will bring to light, will expose the failure, the guilt, the wrong of the world. And do you remember before when I said to you that the world in John's gospel is always seen in a negative light? It's connected with a lifestyle, a a culture, a way of unbelief that is permeating. It's a cultural thing of what the world is involved in. And here in verse 8, we learn that the Holy Spirit will expose, bring to light the guilt of the world. And on first impression, that may seem a negative thing, being exposed. Who wants to be exposed brought to light something that is dark, but it's a gracious work of the Holy Spirit to expose sin and to bring people to light and to bring people to repentance. This morning, if you remember nothing else, that in the work of the Holy Spirit, it is uncomfortable, and yet he gives us an answer. But only the work of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of guilt. But the Spirit's Holy Spirit's work of convicting is worked out in three areas. Do you see it in verses 9 to 11? Verse 8 is kind of the verse that opens it, and verse 9 and 11 expand it. He will convict the world of guilt, in verse 9, in regard to sin. Jesus has come as the light into the darkness, as we were learning in chapter 1. He made himself known as the Son of God, the one who has come to be Savior, Lord, and sin is a rejection of Jesus, not believing in him and his word. That is why John 3, verse 20 says this, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Jesus is the light, and so we hate how the light shines in our darkness. We're fearful of how we might be exposed of our sin and unbelief and rebellion, but the good news is that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world, you and I, of the guilt of sin. For the apostles to hear this, it must have been a great word for them because they have been given the command to go and make disciples. And as they continue the work of God to go and make these disciples, they are reminded that the work of conviction, the work of bringing out sin, is down to the Holy Spirit. Do you want to see an example of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit? Well, then all you need to do this afternoon is read Acts 2. Because in Acts 2, the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Peter, the betrayer, the one who denies Jesus, gets up in front of the crowd at Jerusalem. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He starts telling them about Old Testament passages, like Joel 2. He brings them face to face with the person and teaching and ministry and words of Jesus. And he even backs up Jesus' life with words from King David And listen to Peter's words that day as he called the crowd to consider who Jesus is. He says this, this man, this Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose and knowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. At the end of Peter's sermon or proclamation about Jesus he says this to them, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. What effect did these words have on the crowd that day? What was their response? Was it indifference? Asher, look, take it or leave it. Was it the kind of unmoved? I've heard this before. Of course they've heard about the Messiah. Listen to what Acts 2 verse 37 says. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter told them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How does something like that occur? How do you take an individual like Peter, give him the boldness to preach about Jesus and the response most of us would say, get a charismatic speaker in. Yesterday I was that Vaughan Roberts, he spoke very well at the men's convention. You know, if we brought Von Roberts in, it might work. People might respond like this. If we had a lovely setting, get rid of the pews, make it more friendly for people. Is it down to charisma of Peter? Is it down to the elegance, his bravado? John chapter sixteen, verse eight and nine tells us that the spirit will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin. Isn't that amazing? That that day in Jerusalem three thousand were added to the church because the Spirit of God convicted them about Jesus and what he had done and what they had done to him. And it's a powerful example for us too. Folks, the conviction of sin is still the work of the Holy Spirit today. We can have the best speakers in the world, the best worship, the best everything. But ultimately, the work of conviction comes down to the Holy Spirit. At 12 years old, I attended a Bible club camp in Kilkenny. It wasn't mad impressive. <laughs> it was up in a barn. And I heard the gospel for the first time, I think, in that time. And my heart was struck. Cut to the heart, I literally say. At 12, I had a sense of the seriousness of sin. And I had a sense that Jesus died for it. What happened? Why did that occur? Because the Spirit convicts people of sin. It is a beautiful work of the Holy Spirit in what he does. That he is saying to us today, the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict. We need to pray for that. We need to place our confidence not in speakers, eloquence, even though they're helpful techniques for evangelism, but our confidence is in the work of the Holy Spirit through the words of God to convict Secondly, do you see in verse 10, the Spirit's work is in regard to righteousness. The Holy Spirit will convict the world in regard to righteousness. There are different ways that the word righteousness can be used in the Bible. But it may be helpful to think of righteousness here as anything that we put up or stand up as credit or something that builds us up, that gives us some sort of status of recognition with others or with God. Righteousness could come in the form of achievements, performance. It may be even in East Belfast as I'm being to notice. It might depend on the school you go to. Have gone to. I went to Inst. I went to Campbell. Big deal. But that's righteousness. That's a building up of an identity, a credit within the system. And this is what righteousness is. It could have to do with possessions. I own a BMW, a Fiat Uno. I have a status. This is my job. These are all kinds of forms of righteousness, and they're not all bad, that we build up or we tear down. And throughout John's Gospel, Jesus exposes his self-righteousness, and righteousness that was pretentious, particularly in the leaders of the religious day, the Pharisees. Their righteousness was focused on what they had done, what they had achieved, their own evaluation of how good they were before others and God. But let's be real for a moment all of us are susceptible to the building up of righteousness. But the good news is that the role and ministry of the Holy Spirit here is to convict the world, you and I, of false righteousness, of righteousness that we think gives us a true identity and belonging, but in fact it's unfounded and false. To show this type of righteousness again, take, for example, St. Paul in the New Testament letter of Philippians how he describes how he has amassed such righteousness. Listen to it. He says, if anyone thinks he has confidence or reason to put confidence in the flesh, I've more. I've circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for religious zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. This is who I am. This is what I lived my life for. And if you go back over these things, his identity is found in his culture in his achievements. He was a Pharisee, far greater than some of the others of his day, of his youth, in advancing in it. This is what I was building in my status, my identity. But as we're seeing in chapter 16 of John's Gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of guilt in regard to righteousness. This work of the Spirit is evident in Paul's life, because despite these many things... He can put forward as a means of building up his own righteousness. This is what he would write later. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is true faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. The Spirit of God convicted Paul that all that righteousness that he'd been building his life on was not sufficient. It was good, but it was not to be building your life on, and that he had come to see by the gift of the Holy Spirit that there was a righteousness available to him that comes from God, earned by God, and given by faith and received. A God-given righteousness was achieved by Jesus at the cross of Calvary. And when Jesus returned to his Father, it meant that he was vindicated as the righteous one who had gained a righteousness for people like you and I. We, our neighbors, our friends, we're all like people in Lego world. (laughs) We really are. We're building our own righteousness. Be it through our work, our families, our children, our achievements, our performance, and some of it's good. But if it becomes the foundation, if it becomes the very thing that you build your life on, it means that you'll be susceptible when you fail. You'll be crushed. When you succeed, you'll have to keep on going and going and going in order to keep it all going. The beauty of the work of the Holy Spirit is that he convicts us of false righteousness He says, if you build your life on this, it will be a disaster for you. But you know something? God, through Jesus Christ, has a righteousness that he gives to you, which you cannot earn or perform for. It is earned through Jesus. And this is my work, says the Holy Spirit, to offer you this, to convict you of it, so that you'll reach out in faith and come to him. Thirdly, the aspect of the ministry and role of the Holy Spirit is found in verse 11 in regard to judgment. Bruce Milne in his commentary says this, people claim the right to determine for themselves what will count as sin, what will be their standard of righteousness and where judgment has or has not been properly exposed. How true this is. A brief look at the major news stories over the past few weeks and you'll see people are determining for themselves what is sin, righteousness and judgment. Take for one example this week, which I found quite humorous. Poor old Rory got into awful bother this week, didn't he? Or last week. He had a game of golf with Donald Trump and ended up being called a bigot and a fascist. And he says, I was only playing with him. Association and judgment made. And yet, here we have the work of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 16, verse 8, that tells us when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world in regard to judgment. This judgment is ultimately how we respond to Jesus. Jesus. That's why John chapter 3 verses 19 to 21 tells us the light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. And the prince of this world, the devil stands condemned already for his rejection of Jesus. And the Spirit's work is to show us if we reject Jesus, we'll be in judgment. Lastly and briefly, verses 12 to 16, and I just want to summarize these as we close this morning. The headings here in verse 12 are this, the Spirit of truth will guide the disciples into all truth. The Spirit is not speaking on his own. He only speaks what Jesus has told him. He reveals God's will and purposes. I don't know if you've been canvassed yet on your door, but often what you'll say in in an interview with a politician, is this your own view or is it your party's view? And for the Holy Spirit, he never speaks on his own. It is always within the Godhead, revealing the purpose and will of God. It's always the party line, as it were. And the Spirit has been given Jesus' words. He reveals the significance and the meaning behind it. The Spirit never speaks on his own. And thirdly, the Spirit brings glory to Jesus by making known what belongs to Jesus. The point of these verses, verses 12-15, is that the Spirit is a continuation of the ministry and teaching of Jesus. He makes known what Jesus has been teaching. He drives home the significance and the relevance of it all so that the disciples here will grasp all that Jesus has achieved through his death and resurrection and their major implications of it. I want to close this morning by highlighting just some ways that this can impact our thinking and our lives today. These verses highlight the fact that the work of Jesus is continued by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They're not working separately, but together in perfect harmony so that the disciples would go forward with the gospel concerning Jesus Christ to a needy world. What confidence that lends to the belief in the gospels and the New Testament. Scriptures that Jesus has revealed to us, the Holy Spirit through the disciples, they are working in unison for this reason. So that when you read the gospels, when you read the New Testament, You can take confidence that the spirit of truth has permeated them, has given them to the disciples so that we read them today as God's word. Tomorrow, as you go about your work, your study and your life, as followers of Jesus, take encouragement that the Holy Spirit is in the business of still of convicting, convincing and challenging you, but also your friends, your family and your neighbours. If it's left to us, we are failed We're going to prepare to fail. But God has given the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells the believer, and that Spirit is at work in our work colleagues, in you and me, convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And as Don Carson puts it, he says this, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit is therefore gracious. It is designed to bring men and women of the world to recognize their need and so turn to Jesus. It is uncomfortable, but there's good news. And the question then is, how primarily does this Holy Spirit work? How does he do this work? It is is for people like you and I when we're faced with the words of Jesus. The words here are living and active. It is the very words of God that confronts us on an understanding of sin and righteousness and judgment because it reveals who Jesus is. Sin is serious. Building false righteousness will destroy your life. The judgment of God is serious. But how do we know? Because it is in the Word of God. And so tomorrow as you head to work, as you engage with family, as you yourselves understand what you've been involved in and called to, this work of the Holy Spirit is for the convicting of sin, righteousness and judgment. The Word tells us, doesn't it, It tells us that Jesus shows us the seriousness of our sin by dying on a cross for it. The Word highlights our false righteousness, and yet it wonderfully tells us how Jesus achieved unrighteousness for us that we couldn't earn or achieve. The Word tells us of the judgment we face, but it also tells us of the one who faced it already, Jesus, so that we didn't have to. This Word is God's Word to us. It is good news about Jesus, and so it is to be shared. It is to be given to others, read with others, and God involves us in that great work. Today, as you head out into a new week, remember that Jesus doesn't leave us on our own. He has given us his Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, so that we'll turn to Jesus and find in him good news. Let me pray for us as we continue this morning. Father God, left to our own devices, we're fearful. Left to our own devices, Father, we feel that we can patch up sin. Left to our own devices, Father, we build righteousness in our work, our family, and we'll take it and build our foundations on it. Left to our own, we think we might be okay when it comes to judgment. Father, we thank you today that the Spirit's work, your work, is to convict us of sin, to remind us of the seriousness of it, but yet the good news that Jesus died for us. Thank you, Lord, that you are showing us that we cannot build our lives on false foundations, but Jesus has gained a righteousness for us at the cross of Calvary. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we will face judgment if we reject you, and yet you faced that judgment as you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have one who will convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, but we also have one who has done something about it. Father, today we rejoice that you have given your Holy Spirit, that he he indwells the person who believes in the Lord Jesus and continues that work on convicting and reminding us of all that Jesus has done for us. Lord, may we share that with others this week. May we confront others with the living word of God so that they too will know the good news of Jesus, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.